Genesis, right. So large scale, these numbers are even a little bit behind. We're close to 2 billion there, 6,700. Yeah, it's been a great, but sort of what struck me is that when, when you think about scale, right, which is sort of the root of your, there's sort of what can technology do to help, you know, with that. But more importantly, what is the cultural approach you want to take? And if you think about sort of the industrial complex, it was mainly, it scaled through command and control and HQ centricity, right? That was like the, sort of the, the way most people grew. But if you think about in the modern era, the, the where we live today, it's very hard to make this work. And the pandemic hot put a strong sort of lens on this because you just like you couldn't go. Welcome to the Jeff Larson Show, where I interview innovators and leaders. Today on the show, I've got Tony Bates. Tony, thanks for doing this. Oh, it's great to be here with you, Jess. Excited. I- I'm really looking forward to this as well. You know, right off the bat, when your PR team reached out, I was interested just, you know, CEO at Skype, president of GoPro, you know, time at Microsoft and and these really interesting backgrounds. But then as I started learning more about the premise of, of your empathy-based approach, I got more interested actually in what you're doing now than, than in your history. Maybe to begin with, can you tell people about the book? Yeah. So I am very fortunate to co-write a book. It's for those who don't know about it, it's called Empathy in Action. And the premise of the book is really a little bit of the manifestation first of, of an aha moment when I joined Genesis. And so I, I'm the chairman and CEO of Genesis. What Genesis does is we really, we were born out of contact centers, but really what we are to do today is a cloud-based orchestration company. So think about many, many large companies, whether you come through a digital channel, voice channel, how do you orchestrate the best possible experience? And, and what I was struck by was the fact that everything in the industry was really driven sort of as business metrics, like the way people measure experiences was was effectiveness and efficiency. It actually sort of didn't even mention the fact that there was a person at the end of the line, often at the end of the voice line or a chatbot line or whatever. And I felt like it was really missing what we all really want, right? Which is what we all really want is to be listened to and understood. And I remember when I joined the company, you know, speaking to a number of customers, and they always talked about the best stories were when someone took the time, an agent, right, a call center agent to to listen and understand what you were dealing with process all of that, and then basically give you a much better experience and not try and sell you something in the moment because that was the script that they had, you know, in their hand. And what I recognized was that technology is now reaching a stage where not only can we obviously work on um, efficiency and effectiveness, we can actually start to emulate empathy. We can actually start to get data and put ourselves in the, the, you know, start to be in the shoes of the person that you're actually trying to work with. And so that was what it was born out of. It was born out of, hey, look, we've got to really rethink this whole customer experience landscape. And as we got deeper into the ideation of the book, think of it as sort of a blueprint for business leaders to start to rethink not only just customer experience, but actually the employee experience. Because the other side of a customer typically is an employee. They could be writing code. They could be building products. They could be knowledge workers answering the phone. They could be building the next you know, set of systems. And they want exactly the same thing. And so it's really about sparking a move around the, the, this, what I call the third E, the force multiplier. Efficiency and effectiveness, important, kind of old school way of thinking about running businesses. Empathy, really the, 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 the force multiplier, hopefully give you an order of magnitude change in the way you think about running your business. So that's the quick intro on the book. Well, I really love where you're going with it. I mean, it, you think about like what an ultimate like gold standard of business of being able to like do something profitably at scale 
and have your customers feel like a person instead of a number. I mean, isn't that kind of like the holy grail? Holy grail. And yet, you know, to be provocative a little bit, I don't think you hear many people talking about this on earnings calls. I don't think you see many analysts tracking this. You came from that world. Maybe some, sometimes people will be proud of a CSAT or NPS score, but they never link it back to, to business. And I think that really what we feel and part of what we're trying to stimulate is that, you know, stakeholder capitalism is important, right? Every aspect of it, your employees, your customers. And I don't think you have to sacrifice that. You have to sacrifice what investors should expect from your business, right? Ultimately, they want you to grow. They want to be smart about how you invest. I actually think, honestly, an empathetic culture drives more innovation than, than before. And I think the pandemic really accelerated that in a lot of ways. And we can explore that a little bit. But yeah, absolutely. That is the holy grail. And I think it's achievable. Well, I want to talk a little bit about your background and how you feel like it's helped you come to this. So, you know, we, we mentioned a couple of the, the fancy titles you had, but we didn't cover, you know, SVP at Cisco. They're obviously enormous, you know, board member eBay, board member VMware, you you know, this, this idea that I was trying to go through some of the stats that like, was it when you were at Cisco, you helped grow that, that commercial division over 20 billion in revenue, is that right? Yeah. The, well, think about the enterprise commercial business. So, you know, a very large part of the, of the business, maybe a way to help frame this. I think, um, I've been incredibly lucky to grow up in, in, in a few waves of transformational, transformational change in technology. The first big one was really the internet age, right? So my real background in my early career was I was very fortunate to be involved in the early days of academic networking. And you say, well, why is that important? Well, because it turned out that the internet was going to be the winner. And it turned out that that was going to commercialize fairly quickly and that that was going to transform all these amazing applications that we all take for granted today. And so that led me to early on to Cisco. And three parts about it that I think are important. Number one is I definitely felt that the access to information and the amount of thirst and appetite was going to be a much larger scale than people recognize. And so my early days is I really worked on on, on large-scale routing systems. And I remember, you know, building the highest-end router system. And people said, well, it's going to be like a supercomputer. There'll only be 10 of them sold. So why should we do the project? Turned out to be obviously, you know, no end of appetite for bandwidth and applications. The second piece was working with large-scale enterprise customers. It was just so interesting to me that they were using technology and infrastructure level, but they were all trying to innovate and solve different problems. Whether you talk to the retail industry, you talk to the financial services industry, you talk to the healthcare industry. And then the third thing was while I was there was this wave of video. And video sort of in some ways at the time, if you think about it, was like the killer app, they used to call it, right? One for Cisco, it was great, could consume so much bandwidth. But two, what I, I noticed was the first time I sort of felt a deep connection to the potential of expression of people's ability to sort of express themselves in a different way. I was very fortunate to be on the board of YouTube before it was sold to, to Google. And what I always was struck by, so I sort of, I think I got help recruit there because I'd done things at scale and it's complex infrastructure and so on, but was, wow, people were looking for a, a, a vehicle to really express themselves in different ways. And so it was sort of the first time for me, I felt this connection that a lot of us talk about sort of B to B to C and, and how we'd have to sort of evolve our thinking technologically. And then I got this great opportunity to, to lead Skype at an interesting moment in time. But everything about that was like, how do we make things simple? How do you, whether you're on a, we take it all for granted today, there's much technology, but back then a PC or a mobile phone or a smart TV or a set top box and you walk up to it and you should 
fulfill that same simple, delightful experience, no matter what endpoint device you are, no matter where you are in the world. And so that was sort of the second kind of clue to, you know, we should develop these technologies, not just in terms of how they, they you know, are great for, you know, ROI, return on investment or, or total cost of ownership that you hear a lot in the, in the kind of big, big iron, big software world. But we've really got to stop thinking about the human aspect of that. And then the journey led me from there to being acquired by Microsoft. And it was an incredible experience. And I felt so fortunate to have been involved in lots of different business models. So think about large scale hardware, carrier grade, enterprise class, large scale consumer software. You know, we had a billion users, right? 180 million daily active users on the platform at Skype. And then large scale enterprise software at Microsoft. But I really worked in, 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 in consumer hardware. Hardware. And that led me to this wonderful journey of GoPro. And GoPro really was where I, I, I sort of got the moment of, you've really got to understand what that end user is doing with the product and what is it that they're looking to delight about that product and what, how do you make it every day? And so I suppose that's a long story to say that that led me to this journey of sort of thinking about Genesis through a different lens and thinking about this whole landscape through a slightly different lens. And I think I've been fortunate because of these different business models to come in it, come into this business that's three, it's just been a bit over three years ago and really saying, I got to make this people centric. It's got to be about what's that experience. Because you know inherently, and there's been studies, if you create a wonderful experience, it creates a level of trust and loyalty, which drives long-term customer value. Everyone knows that. It's in every, every book out there. But yet, like I said, most of what I read from analysts, they kept expressing the technology through these business-centric lenses, you know? It's like in, in, in the world of customer experience, it's like hold times, wait times. They just You mentioned it earlier. They, they talk about you as a number, as a cue. Where's the human inside all of that? There's the people-centric approach. And so kind of the learning of that helped me reverse the thinking and empty my mind of the, the classical way that most people have thought about the business. It's fascinating. You know, a number of years ago before the pandemic, before they went public, I had the CEO of Zoom on the show. Yeah. And I and you guys were at Cisco at the same time, weren't you? Eric? Yeah, I love Eric. Eric actually worked in the group for me. You're kidding. He's a superstar. Nope. He was part of the WebEx team and that rolled up to me at the time. And I always knew he was going to go on to do incredible things and, and change the world, which he has, of course. So I'm, I'm in the middle of writing a book of 10 of the interviews of people who grew from zero to a billion they've had on the show, you know? And so I was reviewing his interview yesterday. It's probably four or five years old and, and just as valuable today. You know, you know, back then, you know, even five years ago, Zoom was not a household name. You know what I mean? And, yep. But just like so many of the things that you're saying about like being so deeply concerned about the final user's experience. And he's like, that's why we didn't do marketing. We, you know, they got to 140,000 customers without any marketing over just obsessiveness of what it's like to use the product. And he's like, because when we were going to pay for marketing, if somebody tried it, we needed to know that they were then going to refer somebody to put it right. So I, I'm interested thinking about the combination of these things, obviously some many philosophies that you and Eric <laughs> share there. You know, now you've got an organization, correct me on these numbers, you have 6,000 employees, one, one and a half billion dollars a year in revenue, you know, like something like 55 of the Fortune 100, uh, thousands of customers in a hundred different countries. When you think about it, that scale and the, the kind of the enemy of humanness that scale can be sometimes because of the, of the seeming time constraints, can you talk about the way that you have 
the lens that you've looked at AI and these other technologies through to bring the humanness back into scale? Yeah, maybe just to, before we go to AI, let's just talk about sort of the way you, you talked about Genesis, right? So large scale, these numbers are even a little bit behind. We're close to 2 billion okay. now, 6,700 employees. Yeah, it's been a great, but sort of what struck me is that when, when you think about scale, right, which is sort of the root of your, there's sort of what can technology do to help, you know, with that. But more importantly, what is the cultural approach you want to take? And if you think about sort of the industrial complex, it was mainly, it scaled through command and control and HQ centricity, right? That was the, sort of the, the way most people grew. But if you think about in the modern era, the, the, where we live today, it's very hard to make this work. And the pandemic hot put a strong sort of lens on this because you just like you couldn't go if you had an HQ you couldn't go to the HQ you couldn't rely on sort of relationships being in the same way and so I've always felt that the way to scale given there's so much changing and changes in the world and and the lens is you've got to bring in this idea of empathy that we've talked about in your leadership style right so you've got to actually figure out a way to listen to get signals to to make your 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 talented people feel heard but then once you do that you use some of these techniques like in AI where you understand and start trying to predict these patterns and then you see the outcome of that and then you 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 roll that back in a continuous learning loop and that is actually what we describe in the book and the way that we think about leadership going forward is really what we call the empathy and action framework and I want to make sure your listeners understand empathy isn't you know all things feeling it's not a touchy feely kind of kumbaya thing where everyone gets together it's really about saying hey everyone gets a voice uh everyone gets to input into that we hear you but ultimately once we've taken that data in we make a decision we fly in formation and we try and make things more efficient better more automated and bring that human touch over and over again and i think that's the evolution you're starting to see in artificial intelligence in our space and so without going too deep into the into the details but if you think about Genesis overall, it's hard to totally measure, but we have somewhere around 70 to 100 billion touch points where we build software or services for our customer that are real-time or near real-time, right? They're, they're often synchronous moments like a discussion we're having. And what that means is I either delight you in that moment or I recognize a shift in what you need and I have to adapt really quickly, just like in a human relationship. That's what's so beautiful about the one-on-one -on -one is that we can see everyone's body language. I can understand your tone, your intent. Maybe I say something that's a little bit puts you on the back foot and I can adjust sort of EQ approaches. What I would have put to you is you can stop to do that with technology now. Now, you're not doing it necessarily on a one-on-one -on -one personalized level, but you are doing it in a way that we have history and context about you so I can adjust. I mean, simple examples that I love to use is that what might be a very difficult task for one person may be very, very simple for another. And so the way I think about the shift in AI, AI has really been sort of about automation, you know, so I've been like automate repetitive tasks. Again, very business centric, very efficiency, but where it's really moving is much more around personalizing those tasks relative to your history and context. I'll give you a perfect little example. I'm very comfortable with a password change. I do it every day. It's part of our IT you know, principles. I don't need to speak to anyone. I don't need even a bot to walk me through it. I just, you know, a form's good enough. I just do it, right? I can tell you my mother who's 77, and by the way, she's digitally savvy through the pandemic. Like she knows how to use e-commerce, you know, e-banking, et cetera, so it had to. Still, a password change is a very traumatic thing in her life. 
She needs to have that walk through with a human being who can walk through every step and make her feel good. It's just a simple example of the, the empathy really plays a role in the way you think about building these experience and the tech is now there where we can see that we can see patterns you know where why does someone always fall out of a a mortgage application for one type of person but another one's very comfortable going through that so that's kind of where the technology and it's really sort of saying you know put the person first in everything you do in the design it's funny you know there's a lot of discussion about design thinking and design schools and they basically are about the person i think what we really need is e-thinking empathetic thinking and e-schools in the future because it just takes it to that next level if that makes sense yeah it really does you know on this show we have a lot of founders of of fast-growing companies and investment fund managers and stuff that listen to the show when you think about applications for small and medium businesses how does it change because i know you guys provide services there what does that look like well i think ultimately there's a you know, there's only so much a, a smaller business can do, right? Versus a larger company. And so what we try to do is at the at the small business end, make it a very complete solution, more, more self-serve. But as you sort of go up in complexity and need, you've also got to have a system that's very adaptive. So, you know, for anyone who's building these systems that want to cross big market segments, you know, it's going to sound buzzwordy, but it's just a fact. You have to have a great architecture. You've got to think about the APIs you build. You've got to think about your partner ecosystem from day one. Often you find people start companies and they're like, you know, I, I they read the book and it's like, first get product market fit, then figure out the viral loop, then, then figure out how to make it a platform. And I would just say that I think the more that... You can, obviously you've got to balance your resources. Think about platform first and the long-term sort of architecture you're trying to build is really, really important. And as I mentioned, even in the way that we build products, we use this exact same four-step empathy and action framework. Now, look, we're a 30-year-old company. So, you know, we didn't, weren't born from a, a startup place in the modern era. And so we've also had to adapt and transform our culture. The biggest transformation that Genesis has gone through has been a traditional on-premise company to a, a next generation cloud company. And, you know, we've, we've successfully got through that transformation, but it really is about making sure you can innovate quickly and you can get the feedback and data and signals from your customers. Because if you don't have those systems, it's very hard to instrument them later, you know, and I would like really for people to do that upfront. Like what's an example of what's been effective for you that maybe you don't see all of the competitors of your size able to do? Well, I think that the, the effective part is sort of sticking through the belief system of, of this architecture, because as you grow, you get a lot of pressure, rightly so, from large com- companies, and they want you to do unique and different things for them. And that creates customization. And look, Genesis has its fair share. So I don't want to say we're perfect, but with our next gen cloud products, it's really trying to make that fit this, this framework and, and not waver from that. Because the minute you start to fragment and customize, you lose the magic of that, you know, of that pace of innovation. It's a lot easier in modern technology because you can get, you get a lot of leverage from the cloud players, whether it's, you know, Amazon, Google, and Microsoft, for example. But still it comes back to intestinal fortitude to match your values and your mission to your product strategy, despite the fact that there might be some short-term revenue gains that you want to get. So I think that is an important balance that leaders have to have to kind of manage. And it's a bit situational depending on your segment and your and your yeah. area. Well, I'm really interested in that balance beam. You know, even though my companies are are so small compared to yours, this happens to us where somebody waves money in front of our face. Hey, what, will you do this one different thing for me outside of the system and I'll pay you, I'll pay you really well right now. And it's tempting, right? Sure. 
So I'm interested on that balance beam because, you know, oftentimes supposed to's aren't that helpful because they're not live to the situation. So when you think about this decision tree of like, okay, is that distracting too much for the platform or, or is this the opportunity we should make some sort of exception for? Like, as you think through those, what does that decision tree look like for you? The bias, if you think the scale of where we're at, you, you might think that, well, we've got a lot of things in in you know highly scaled we got a highly scaled and efficient go to customer team right between sales marketing service and and a lot of r&d i always think about it in the terms of standardization replication and so on and really try to resist the customization why not yeah because look ultimately in technology companies the thing that undoes most of us is tech debt right is the technical debt that you you build over time sometimes you die under the weight of it and some a new competitor comes in and then you know they they just they don't have that debt they they come with a clean slate you know in, in the world of tech today there's so much incredible innovation and open source technology and leverage and you should leverage all of that wherever you can and so I say that the way back to your, your question is bias towards the long-term platform goal, whatever that is, but you must stay current if you're going to do that. Otherwise, it sort of a fool's errand not to take the customization, right? Because if you're just going to sort of make that the stated case, but then actually you're still falling behind, you may as well take the customization. In my area in the early days, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of customization. It's very complex. You know, many different CRM systems, many different ERP systems, many different systems of record. So probably then it was the right call. But I would say going forward, if I, you know, in any C-suite conversation, people want to get to this promised land that we call, we call it experience as a service, as a category, this empathetic, that's what they really want. And so ultimately, I think in that kind of seesaw, you want to bias towards the innovation. Obviously, you've got to be situation to where your cash flow needs are and so on. But I would err on that. And, and so it's actually kind of interesting. I'm not saying growth at all costs. I'm saying kind of platform at all costs relative to what you're doing. It's, 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 it'd be my kind of yardstick, if you like. Well, as you say that, it makes me think about the difference between short-term thinking and long-term thinking. Because every time I get in one of these situations where it kind of feels like the tail is wagging the dog, right? It's it's for short-term money. It's not for replicable money. It's not for a pipeline of money that will pay us for years to come, like the thing we're actually norm working on, right? It's like, ooh, do you want to take this shiny object? Do you want to take this short distraction? There's some there's some quick, you know, seemingly quick, easy money in it that, that distracts you, that distracts us from the real goal of what we're really trying to build in the larger scale, right? And so the, that was really helpful the way you said it because I guess I have such a value for long-term thinking and it's like, yes, I have to stay alive. I have to have enough short-term thinking to stay alive. But as far as a preference, like, you know, 700 of these episodes later, all these books I read, like it's the long-term thinkers that win in the end, it seems like. Yeah, I think long-term thinking, but maybe, and, and this is not, I learned this at Cisco, so this is all John Chambers and he was a great leader and mentor to me. So I think long-term though, you have to frame it in in a form of a vision because it's easy to say long-term and then like, you know, no one can predict the macro forces that we have somewhat negative, well, many negative forces today. So, you know, there's like long-term thinking with scenario plans, but one way I like to think about it, and we have a whole plan on a page that we use internally, but sort of vision's got to be five years minimum, five to 10 years, you know, our highest level vision is we want to create empathetic experiences for everyone on the planet, right? Delivered through our software. So, but, but then the strategy is the, is the real key, which is they've got to be long-term sustainable differentiators. 
and maybe, you know, maybe they're a three year kind of refresh and there can't be too many of them because if there's too many of them, by definition, they're probably not going to be long-term and sustainable and differentiated. And then you have these execution elements. And what we try and do is make sure those execution elements always accrete to one of those strategy pillars, right? And that strategy pillar always accretes to the vision. That way, when you're motivating employees, when you're doing difficult decisions, that all of us have to do as leaders and prioritization, people feel connected to that long-term thinking. Even though often it's very hard when you're coding or you're closing the next deal or you know, you're working on a new back office system or you're in IT on a workflow. It's very hard to like know, is that long-term I'm working on or short-term? And so it's a nice kind of way of then putting that in a, in a framework that can, can help people through that. Because I think everyone wants to feel, you know, I would say as a leading fairly large organizations, everyone would love to do strategy, but not everyone can, right? We just can't, again, we, it, it's like take input, fly information, but if they can feel connected to it and connected to that longer term vision and thinking that you were outlining, I think it can really, you know, you can really fire on all cylinders on up, upturns and downturns. Well, I like the way that you tie it to differentiation. Like that makes so much sense to me of, you know, what you're executing for the strategy towards the long-term platform, right? And like thinking about, I mean, the simple examples like at Amazon when Bezos says, you know, what are things that are not going to change with technology? Do we think our customers are ever going to want more expensive shipping? Yeah. They're like, okay, there's something we can plan on. Yeah. Do you think the customers are ever going to want a worse experience? Like, no. Right. Like at our, at our commercial real estate fund, we're working on these kind of like Airbnb, like boutique Airbnb resorts that are really focused on these action sports families. And like for us, we can go like, do we feel like there's much of a risk of nature going out of style? Nope. Nature is always going to be in style, right? And it's like, do we have teepees or do we have mirror house cabins? Some of that stuff is going to go in and out of style. But like, you know, having a chance to turn your phone off and do something exhilarating on the ski slopes and something calming, like the hot tub, you like some of those, there's like, there are some constants that are like longer term vision that are not specifically a strategy per se, that could be, yeah. there could be different forms of execution. So anyway, that's the way I'm trying to translate it for my brain. I don't know if you're yeah. on the right track or not. Well, I think you are on something. And I think that sometimes people say stuff like, I'm going to be mobile first. That's my long-term strategy. I don't think that's what we're getting at here, to your point. Like, it's got to be a double-click level of the differentiation that you're going to bring, right? Or companies will sometimes say, I'm a data company. So, okay, what is it about the data that's really differentiated and how are you going to apply it as a sort of a way to think? So, yeah, it's it's kind of in the detail, but they, they've got to hold up in the context. That's why I think frameworks are excellent. You know, like the Empathy in Action framework, I, I've talked a bunch about today, but how you apply it for, for your real estate fund is going to be different to how I apply it for Genesis, but the principles are the same at their root. Understand that signal, make some decisions, continuously learn from it with the long-term beacon of the vision always in mind. Yeah, no. And I guess I didn't really get to the differentiation part because you bring, I just bring up, like I look at my family, my friend's family, we spend a lot of money to go to these great surfing beaches or to go to these great ski resorts. And then when we get there, the Airbnbs are just generic. It's just another house. You know what I mean? Like there's nothing, there's nothing special. There's nothing that says this was for you. Like the people who this is their first time versus people who spend thousands of dollars and they bring their 40 foot trailer with their snowmobiles in it. And the, you know, right there, there's nothing purpose built. Like we spend so much money to get there and then you get there and it's one size fits all, like one size fits all hotel rooms. You know, there's nothing that says like, this is by people like you. And so like, can we go deep in that? And, and yes, we'll probably end up with copycats at some point if we end up more 
more profitable than others. But if we can keep going deeper and deeper into that, that, that feels like a longer term differentiation in the sense of most, most of our competitors are unlikely. I don't know. We don't see our competitors with the guts to, to potentially alienate large percentage of the population to completely nail it for a smaller portion. I don't know. Well, you know, that's a long story. There's a little bit of GoPro in there, which we could talk about in a different session. But I would say the good news is if you pick one of these approaches, technology is there now. Like let's just use our example. Everything's generic and yet be so easy to collect the data to know a, sim- a single preference, right? I don't know. I'm just making up like a certain shampoo product. Like why don't you just stock it? Because you basically could easily use like Genesis software. There'd be a survey at the end of a, of a customer experience call and then you'd probably pay a premium. So that's just a simple example of it. So I think that, you know, the great news on this is, and I think this is why we're going to be in a, you know, such an innovative world is that this technology is really there. The data is there. What you do with it is a different story and how you use it. But I think we're going to open up all sorts of new experience across everything we do. Well, as I've been researching you guys, I keep thinking about these use cases. And I'm thinking because we've been thinking about having our customer team. So we're already in Philippines, Argentina, Canada, US, Hawaii, France. Columbia, it's where our team is spread across. And I think it wouldn't be too hard to get a couple more staff members in a couple more time zones. And then we can have like 24-7, 24-7 phone calls answered. But how great would it be if it's like, I, I, and I don't know if your software does this, it just sounded like it when I was doing the research. So like they could know, hey, is this a family that's bringing kids and they want hot chocolate? Or is this the parents who want coffee stocked? It'd be like, like, what are our personalization options that if you stay at our different resorts across the country, it could feel like we made it for you over and over. Like what are some small touches that we could track of that anybody who answers a call from them, like it pulled up who they are and what their preferences are. I, I, I mean, that I'm feels like we know them or something. Yeah, the technology is there. I mean, you know, full profiles. It's got even beyond that where you can do things like what we call predictive engagement. So you can even know based on sort of where you would be in that journey of questioning what's the right way. I mean, it goes beyond, right? It's like, why is it just an email survey? Why is it not like re-engage? I don't know what your favorite social tool is, but engage you that way. Like everyone is, I mean, I think what happened with personalization, if I may, and we we highlight this in the book a little bit, which is personalization sort of became a proxy for targeting. And we used to sort of use demographic as that proxy. But if you, which is again, a very business centric way of looking at the world. It's like, but if you flip that and say, no, personalization is really about people and, you know, use the same example, like my mother and I would never be in the same targeted demographic, probably for anything. Right. And yet. We may use a product in exactly the same way with just a different personal touch for one certain thing in the new world. And by the way, I do think that the pandemic accelerated all of this because it sort of digitally democratized us all. You know, my mum's as savvy on WhatsApp as I am, right? And I wouldn't have said that when I was CEO, when I, she used to ask her to use Skype because I was running Skype. So it's almost like been pulled through. So now we've got to really think, rethink personalization, not in the way that we thought about it before, which was fundamentally sort of like, if you live in a certain zip code of a certain age of a certain demographic, you know, you get served a targeted ad. And that was as good as it got. But to your point, it's like every single person has that view. And so it's sort of flipping it on its head. The text kind of there, what the book is about, and I think what we've been talking a lot is, you know, and apply it to what you're talking about, which is now you've got to think about how you reframe what you're building and how you use this technology. Because it's not like, now it's not going to do everything for you. So, oh, here's a new real estate business, spin up a contact center org, and we'll give you 15 different profile options. You've still 
still got to invent that, but we've got all the tools for then you to have that pop up, as you mentioned, the right level of personalization, how you build the, you know, that feedback into your products and your services. Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, we'd like to cut these episodes in half. I think this is a good part for the end of part one. For, for anybody who needs a reminder, can you give people the, the elevator pitch on, on the book? Yes. Highest level of the book, Empathy in Action, is really about putting uh, empathy as the force multiplier in everything you do. We focused on customer experience to start with. It became about, about employee experience. And so everything up till now has been about efficiency and effectiveness. We believe the game changer is really about making it people-centric, moving the world from business-centric to people-centric. Great. And then same thing for the business. If, if somebody's listening and they're thinking, oh, I would like more personalization, you know, maybe we should look at Genesis for our company. You know, where should they start their, their learning journey? Like, is there a certain tab on your website or? No, I think, look, if you want to learn more about Genesis, go to Genesis.com, start your journey right there. We have all sorts of solutions and products, no matter what size of business you are. And we can really help you on that personalized, orchestrated, empathetic experience that you're looking for. <laughs> I love it. Okay, everybody, please tune in for part two. I've got a whole bunch more questions for Tony. Thanks so much.